10 things that really matter in terms of how you look at the world. Very interesting. Uh, Satisficing would be number one, and decision-making under uncertainty. So the idea that something that may seem at first glance to be completely irrational may in fact be a useful and uh, highly effective uh, non-catastrophic heuristic. So what would an example of that be? I would argue, interestingly, this is a very interesting thing, actually, which is worth knowing, that David Ogilvie, at around the same time as Herbert Simon was doing his work, David Ogilvie was talking to someone called Joel Raffleson, who ran the Chicago office. And they both came to the conclusion that people bought brands. They bought brand A over brand B, not because they thought it was better, but because they were more certain it was good. And so the idea that when you make decisions in an uncertain setting, you have to care about the, not only the expected outcome, but also the possible variance. And that we'll pay a premium not only for better, but for less likely to be terrible, seems to be an important thing to understand in decision making. Second thing would be that it looks as though human decision making is pretty path dependent. Now, I've, in one case in my life, been able to profit from this, which is, I live in a house which is, in the UK, it's called Grade 1 Listed. It's by Robert Adam. The grounds are by Capability Brown. Um, It's a four-bedroom flat in the roof of that building, which was built for the personal doctor of George III in about 1785. Now, the weird thing is, I didn't pay anything extra for the architecture or the genius of the landscaping because nobody places that very high on their list of priorities when they buy a house. I've got an economist who lives next door, who lives next door. I asked him, um, how much do you think we pay for this property relative to a property in an identical location of the same size by an indifferent architect and with average gardens? What's the premium we pay for, for the Robert Adamness of it? And he said somewhere between zero and about 5%. Now that's quite interesting. Now if you think about it, when we buy a property, the order in which we look at things goes, uh, where is it? Uh, in, in the UK, it varies slightly by country. In the UK, it might be how many bedrooms has it got. In the US, it might be what's the floor, floor area. Um, we might then look at, you know, size of garden, um, you know, a few other features. Does it have a pool? But the architecture generally comes pretty low down the list. So it's only, we only look at architectural aesthetics when we've got down to a kind of final selection of four or five. So the strange thing is, whereas a painting by a great artist might cost literally 10,000 times more than an equivalent-sized painting by an indifferent artist, a building by a fantastic architect costs about 1% more than the building by an average or even indifferent architect. Now, if you think about it, if we bought paintings the way we bought property, what we do is we go, okay, I want a painting that's exactly this size. I want these three colours to predominate. I want it to be in exactly these proportions. And then finally, at, say, the fifth iteration, we got down to uh, who the artist was. Then actually, most of the time, we wouldn't end up with a Picasso. So it's a very simple tip looking at this. It seems to me that architecture is an incredibly cheap way of buying art compared to art. 
If you're interested and want to take advantage of this, go to a website in the US called Right on the Market, which shows Frank Lloyd Wright properties for sale. In most cases, they seem to be no more expensive than the neighbouring property. Uh, similarly, in the UK, there was a Gropius flat that came for sale. Uh, again, no, it was expensive because it was in Notting Hill, but no more expensive than a totally average building next door. So that, that intrigues me about human decision-making, that there seems to be a kind of path dependence involved. So what else would you like? I've, I mentioned satisficing seems pretty useful. Costly signalling theory, that seems pretty useful. Um, I suppose, you know, the peacock's tail is the standard view. Um, what seems undoubtedly true is that we invest a significance in any piece of communication in some way in proportion to the cost of generating or transmitting it. So instinctively, you will open the FedEx package on your desk before you open the letter. One of the problems of email, in fact, is there's no cost attached to sending any of it, so we don't have a useful heuristic for deciding what to read first. So that strikes me as interesting. Now, what cost might mean there could be anything from financial expense to use of a scarce resource. So, for example, anything that requires something in scarce supply, whether it be money or talent or effort or time, the more that is invested in the communication, essentially the more weight that communication carries. Now, that makes perfect sense because in some ways that means your sincerity is hard to fake or costly to fake. That could also apply to creativity. So let me give you an example. You receive two wedding invitations on the same day and uh, one of them comes in an expensive envelope with gilt edges and embossing. The other one contains exactly the same information, but it's in the shape of an email. You're probably going to go to the first wedding. The second one, the dangerous implication, there might be a cash bar, I think. Now what happens if you haven't got much money but you want to do an impactful wedding invitation? Then you make it really creative. You can't put actual money into the paper or the printing. What you can put in is something different, which is imagination. You can make it a fantastically imaginative wedding invitation. You can make it beautiful. You can make it gorgeous. But there has to be some sort of investment of a costly thing. It's the difference between saying your horse is going to win and visibly betting on your horse. Nassim would say in the latter case you have skin in the game, in the former case you don't. So that's, that's a really important thing to understand, that to some extent effective communication will always require some degree of inefficiency, because if it's perfectly inefficient it then becomes meaningless. There's a rather lovely company which exists now in the UK, which takes people who, for often medical reasons, or because, say, they're a carer, are effectively housebound, and they're paid to handwrite envelopes. Now, you could regard this as a very silly thing to do. I think in costly signalling theory terms, it makes perfect sense. Um, now, it's also worth remembering another thing worth bearing in mind is counter-signalling, which seems to be, un unlike signalling, seems to be uniquely human. There aren't cases of peacocks who demonstrate their extraordinary genetic quality by having really shitty tails. Mm -hmm. But what seems to happen with humans is you have multiple parallel status currencies. And therefore, quite often, you will signal your position on status, first of all, by adopting none of the status currencies of the class immediately below your own, or by essentially demonstrating zero effort in standard status currencies as evidence that 
yeah, un unwashed bass guitarists in cool rock bands can get away with basically very poor levels of hygiene. The signal there being, I'm so sexy by dint of my bass guitar playing skills that I can actually get away with not making an effort in any of these conventional areas. So sometimes it's done as a kind of positional thing and sometimes it's done as a sh pure kind of demonstration of handicap. Um, so that's, that's, so generally understanding the concept of signaling, I suppose there might be, a, is it relevance theory might be another thing that's interesting. You know, in other words, replacing the conduit idea of communication with this idea that most of, that we communicate the minimum necessary for the recipient to recreate the message within their own head using context as a very large part of the information. So, you know, those, those, those interesting theories of communication, which don't always sit with the Claude Shannon theories, I think are worth, are worth exploring. A very simple idea would be jokes, to some extent, rely on some part of recognition and the part of the recipient. I, these are one of these things, these are some of these things rather like talking about what's ergodic or not, where your blood starts to come out of your ears. But the conduit theory of information is that information is kind of assembled, transmitted and then reassembled as though the information is all there is. Whereas quite a lot of advertising works very, very heavily. Uh, in other words, 10% of its information, the rest of it is inference. I suppose that's the way to put it. That, and actually, we will understand the, um, the communication very differently depending on context. Now, from the advertising industry perspective, one of the most interesting things I ever learned, which I, when you think about it, it's fascinating. The general idea of advertising is that it manipulates people into liking things more than they should. Now, I'll dispute that, actually. I completely agree with uh, uh, various psychologists who point out that marketers undoubtedly exploit attentional bias. Uh, the only defence I'll make is that we will ex we will exhibit attentional bias anyway if left to our own devices, and you know we might we, you know so actually changing what people pay attention to, and what people think of as important is quite useful in terms of any form of innovation. Most significant innovations uh, effectively operate by ignoring the established rules of a category, and creating some new rules somewhere else, you know. So, you know, if you take, you know, there was a period where the, the whole thing about mobile phones was all about how small they were and all about miniaturization. Mm -hmm. Now, that reached, you know, th that reached levels of absurdity and come to literally the reductio ad absurdum, mm -hmm. where phones were so small you could hardly retrieve them from your pocket. And then eventually people stopped paying attention to smallness and marketers encouraged them to pay attention to usability actually large screen size then you know the the current you've probably got the the iphone mega have you or the fairly large the iphone plus mm -hmm. so you know we stopped paying attention to one thing and we started using a different heuristic so so marketing actually in some ways makes markets slightly more dynamic by preventing people being fixated for too long mm -hmm. on any one particular dimension of comparison but anyway, I'll part that. The interesting thing, which I think suggests that there's a very large amount of inference and context that goes into uh, absorbing information and how we interpret it. In Eastern Europe under communism, if you advertised a product, demand generally went down. Now, you're going to ask, what the hell is going on here? How can advertising, if it works as we conventionally think it does, in other words, uh, without actual contextual... Um, uh, translation as it were how on earth can that happen 
The interesting reason is under communism, anything that was worthwhile or desirable was in short supply. So consumers inferred that the only possible reason that the government might be promoting something was that they'd accidentally managed to produce something of such unremitting crappiness that people weren't willing to queue for it. And so it's very, very interesting that we don't, you know, you know, the, the conventional view of advertising is that, you know, you say something's good, perceived value rises. In fact, you could argue that quite a lot of advertising is a, is a reliable, costly signal because you wouldn't do it if you had a bad product. It's an expensive activity which disproportionately pays for something which is widely and repeatedly popular over time but actually is probably a very bad approach if you have something where, frankly, customer satisfaction in the product is going to be low and repeat purchase is going to be low. And, you know, in other words, it's a demonstration of faith in what you are selling, which is sincere because there's a cost attached. And we need to be alert to this because there's a move in advertising to make it more and more efficient by making it all digital. Now, arguably, when you make it more efficient, you actually make it less convincing. There's also a value, I think, to the fact that advertising takes place in a mass medium because a promise you make to multiple people simultaneously is a bigger bet than making a promise to one individual at a time. That's why when we get married, we state our vows in a crowded church full of 200 people we all know well rather than going door to door reading out our, our vows to people one at a time. Because in a, in a mass setting, only one person's got to call your bluff and you've lost. It shows instinctively more confidence to make a promise in a public space than it does to make it one person at a time. So we have to be very, very careful as we obsess about, uh, you know, the uh, newly efficient digital modes of advertising that we aren't actually throwing away the baby with the bathwater. You know, if you take sort of programmatic digital banners, displays, you might be reaching exactly the same audience as a TV ad does. Mm -hmm. But if you're reaching them with a lower level of essentially, of, uh, if you're creating a lower level of conviction mm -hmm. in that same audience then actually what you're doing may appear to be efficient, but it's less effective. Mm -hmm. So costly signaling, I think, is one of those sort of mental tools you can't do without. What else? What else? I've mentioned satisficing. Um, Nassim Taleb is very interesting on the Lindy effect. He believes that if you have a really worthwhile finding in social science or psychology, you will find mention of it going back to the ancient world. And... Aesop, you might argue, the fox and the grapes is a very, very early uh, instance of kind of avoiding cognitive dissonance or avoiding regret. Now, I had a very interesting conversation about this with the HMRC, the people who actually do taxation in the UK. And my contention is that when you give people information that contains a bit of bad and a bit of good, or even quite a lot of bad and a little bit of good, the natural human reaction is to amplify the good in terms of their attention and minimize the bad. So the opposite, sometimes the opposite of sour grapes is called sweet lemons. And sweet lemons is when we go, well, yes, I did spend three years in prison, but if I hadn't had that time in prison, I never would have met those really interesting people and had such a formative experience. Mm -hmm. So we take things that, you know, yeah, perhaps a more objective person would think of as unremittingly awful, mm -hmm. and we construct a little bit of a positive out of it. 
And I explained to the tax people that the way tax is done, where there is absolutely no trade-off, it provides us with no means of doing that. Now, if by paying more tax, more income tax, you got a very small amount of a token benefit, for example, let's say that when you paid more income tax at age 30, it might increase your inheritance tax threshold, the amount you could pass on to people, or that your, um, uh, your base level tax rate in retirement would go up a little bit. Let me, tell you a little, let me tell you a little story. So if you can provide people with the opportunity to construct a more positive story. Now in ancient Rome and in ancient Greece they did this, which is that if you paid wealth tax you got a column honouring your contribution. There was some small upside. And in fact it worked so well that people came out of the woodwork and said, well you haven't asked me to pay this wealth tax and I'm actually much wealthier than him, so I should be on the column too. So if there's some status benefit, generally, or some other benefit that you can write into a narrative involving a trade-off, and the most extraordinary thing happened with me, which suddenly made this Aesop point, which I suppose Aesop is, what, 7th century BC? It's, it's you know, it's comfortable two and a half thousand years old as, a, as a, an insight, so I think it's stood the test of time, shall we say. Um, that I'm landing on an easy jet plane, and the, normally when you get a bus to the terminal, you're really pissed off, aren't you? Because you go, damn it, you know, I've paid this thing, I've been shortchanged here, I was expecting an air bridge, and you're going to drive me to the terminal on a ruddy bus. Mm -hmm. So, you're, you know, generally everybody's kind of spitting and angry. Mm -hmm. And the pilot said something extraordinary. And this, is, this comes down to a, a really good book by Robert Cialdini. Yeah. Is that one of um, In many ways, I think he's the godfather of really useful behavioural science, a fantastic mm -hmm. man. And... Persuasion is all about the fact that actually we automatically assume that what we pay attention to is what's important. So this is another uh, really valuable concept, um, that nothing is as important as we think it is while we're thinking about it, as, uh, if you like. But anyway, this pilot suddenly says something I'd never heard before. Instead of saying, I'm terribly sorry, we haven't been able to get an air bridge, you'll be bussed to the terminal, if you just wait while the bus draws up on the port side of the aircraft. No, didn't say this. He said, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. The bad news is we haven't been able to get an air bridge because there's a plane blocking our gate. The good news is that the bus will take you right next to passport control so you won't have far to walk with your bags. There's something I've realised, that's always true. When you get a bus, there's an upside to the bus, which is you don't have a long walk through a shopping centre with your carry-on luggage in order to get to passport control and then the baggage carousel. But because we didn't, because no one had actually brought our attention to it, we had no opportunity to derive the positive. So here's a little social science experiment everybody can do, which is next time you're on a plane and it lands and there's a bus and they simply announce, I'm afraid we'll have to bus you to the terminal building. Say quite loudly, actually, I'm pleased there's a bus because the bus drives you all the way to passport control so you don't have to walk there with your bags. You will have synthesised a large dose of happiness among everybody within earshot without changing objective reality at all, simply by changing the way people look at something. And why I thought that pilot was a genius is there always was an upside to the bus. But because, you know, bus replacement services on trains are always widely hated and so on and so forth, we never even assumed there was one to find. 
And the second it was pointed out to us, our attitude to having a bus is completely changed. So there's a value to marketing. This is a very strange, and some people might say massively self-interested defense of marketing. But it's perfectly possible to create value not by changing the material world at all, but simply by changing the way we direct our attention or the way attention is directed. Now, in environmental terms, you could say this has a rather a lot of potential. If you can change people's focus, attention and their status currencies so they derive more pleasure from what already exists rather than from what has to be created to sate their demands, you can actually essentially increase wealth without increasing consumption. That seems to me a rather an important finding because one of the dangerous assumptions of economics among many is that because they assume that we are already blessed with perfect information and perfect trust and they assume that we're already essentially making optimal use of the money we have the only way in which you can increase well-being according to economic assumptions is essentially by burning more things now i'd argue intangible value once you learn to respect it shows that in fact you can make people very very content with less Think about it, a Prius is a reasonably high-status car. It's an interesting car, the Prius, in the sense that you probably have to be a bit of a liberal to get away with this. I don't think this works in Texas. But you could turn up at the Oscars in a Prius and no one would think there was anything remotely weird about it. That's actually... Now, if you, if you, if you generally define wealth not in, in purely financial terms, but in the number of choices people can freely and enjoyably make... By essentially enabling people to have a small, modest car without any, you know, uh, with, without any stigma being attached to it, that's a pretty useful thing you've just done in terms of wealth creation. So I think, you know, I think, I think there are some really, really interesting. I, I think there are the interesting thing about this. I don't think any. I don't think there's any huge amount of intelligence required to look at the world through different lenses. I think the difficulty lies in that you have to abandon four or five assumptions about the world simultaneously. I think that's what probably makes it difficult. Cool. The essential problem is exactly the same in the private sector, the public sector, or indeed the charitable sector, which is that most decisions are made, particularly in any kind of institution, in quite a risk-averse manner and if you think about it in most jobs uh, the what you, th there's a very asymmetric reward mechanism which is you know if, if you do something well you get a pat on the back if anything goes wrong disastrously wrong you lose your job one very safe way of never really so very simply in individual decision-making we probably are very strongly motivated by fear of regret and in collective decision-making, in institutional decision-making, in business or in government, the thing that drives us is fear of blame. And cleaving to a very narrow, simplified, rational model is usually a good way to protect yourself against blame. So I have a very simple sort of mantra here, which is that uh, it's far easier to be fired for being illogical than it is for being unimaginative. So, you know, if, if, if you make a decision which proves to be disastrous, but it is based on solid logical foundations, you keep your job.
If you make a decision which may be a better decision on average, but which involves a degree of counterintuitive thinking, second-order thinking, or indeed a, you know, a degree of subjectivity, well, if it goes really well, you won't get much more credit than you would using the logical approach. If it goes wrong, you're now out of a job. You're vilified. Uh, I think Gerd Gigerenz, uh, I think Gerd calls this defensive decision-making. And that is a really, really useful thing to understand, which is that one of the ways in which we make decisions defensively, in medicine it probably leads to over-intervention. You you, it's much easier to get sued for not doing something than it is for doing something. So it creates extraordinary distortions of decision-making, which is that what we're not really thinking is what's the best decision here. We're thinking of um, what personally... Uh, in other words, the, I'm going to choose whichever course, in whichever course the worst case scenario is least catastrophic for me personally. That's one of the reasons why business meetings proliferate to such an extent, which is that it's a way of burying decision making in the collective rather than forcing any one individual to take responsibility. And so this seems to me an incredibly strong human instinct um, in that People choose very conventionally because the consequences of failure are less catastrophic. It's probably why there are four big accounting firms. If you appoint one of the big four, if anything goes wrong, people blame Price Waterhouse. If you appoint a small boutique accounting firm, it might be faster, cheaper, and, and better in most objective measures. But if anything goes wrong, they'll now blame you because you've taken a non-standard decision. And so that sort of very strong drive to conformity and risk avoidance probably explains the necessity of entrepreneurs in a kind of, in a business sense, the kind of people who aren't constrained by that kind of institutional thinking. But it, it's also something to be really, really alert to in understanding how people decide. So government and business will both tend to adopt those practices. So one of the things you have to do when you're working with any of these sectors, charitable, business, government, is say, because of this, they are all operating under certain norms or assumptions which are convenient, some of which are probably wrong. Now, I think particularly that very, uh, what you might call very poorly understood neoclassical economics creates one such um, template which risk-averse people can always cling to, because no one will ever get fired for assuming that economics is true. Now, the example I gave recently in a talk is, let's imagine you want to compete with Coca-Cola and uh, you're thinking, okay, uh, so for about 150 years it has been the most popular cold non-alcoholic drink other than water anywhere in the world. We want some of that action. So you go in and you say, what we need to produce is a drink that tastes nicer than Coke, costs less than Coke, and comes in a really big bottle, so people get great value for money. Uh, no one in that meeting is going to go, Sullivan's pretty wax, isn't he? You know, no, everyone is going to nod along. No one will ever put a stop. You research the drink. It does indeed research better than Coke. You've reduced the price. All of those things seem wonderful. Okay, You will never lose your job for doing that. The only problem with this is the most successful attempt to compete with Coke in the last 50 years is Red Bull. And it costs a fortune, comes in a tiny can, and it tastes disgusting. <laughs> okay, now, 
patently the psychological processes at work here are not the same psychological processes that would be assumed by a kind of first-year economist. I think there's something going on with the placebo effect there, which is that um, uh, probably in order for us to think that something has psychotropic or medicinal powers, it has to taste a bit weird. I mean, health food basically tastes a bit shit, doesn't it? I mean, wheatgrass. It's like, you know, it's effectively like licking the underside of your lawnmower, right? But we tend to infer there's a kind of trade-off in these things, that actually if it's going to have psychotropic or medicinal effects, there's going to be a downside somewhere. And so I think we believe Red Bull in a way that we wouldn't believe um, a, you know, a nicer tasting drink had those kind of energy boosting creative powers that it's, it, it's billed as providing. And so, you know, I think there's some really interesting cases there where you might want to add a negative. A second case would be um, going and talking to the very same tax people. I raised a, a point which I think is true. You, you probably know of the work Shlomo Bonazzi uh, has done on the Save More Tomorrow pension, which is effectively a case where you take two pensions which should be economically identical if we are indeed homo economicus, and yet the rate of uptake of, on Shlomo's pension, although it costs exactly the same, is I think two or three times greater and the amount saved is also greater. So you have more people saving more. Simply by designing it so that um, what happens is a proportion of all your pay rises goes into a pension so that you, you never get poorer through having a pension, you just get richer slower. Now to an economist those two states are identical to the human brain, I think for fairly obvious evolutionary reasons, we feel losses more acutely than we enjoy gains. Now another one I've added to this is I think that one of the great mistakes that British pension policy has made is that it hasn't set a limit on how much we can save. Now that seems completely counterintuitive, the idea that people would save more if there was a maximum amount that you could save. But I think partly because we're rivalrous creatures and probably compare our savings to each other, but also because a limit would set an implicit target. So we might not save up to the limit, but we might say, well, I'd better do at least half. Whereas having no limit provides no anchor point. <coughs> now, I have some evidence to suggest that I might be right in this theory, because there is a British savings product which is called the ISA. It used to be called the PEP. That does have a maximum. It's going up to £20,000 this year. Um, it was previously, I think, fourteen, if I'm right, £14,000. And what was remarkable is that a very large number of people actually saved in an ISA, and indeed what they saved would tend to be either the whole amount or a fraction of the maximum amount allowed. But economics won't get you there, because it's only a very, very partial explanation of human motivation. It's human motivation with all the other variables set to zero, really, other than sort of greed or prudence. It's everything else is set to zero. So what other, what other things would be interesting? I think Nassim's work on minority rule is fascinating. I think uh, that Nassim Taleb's work was suggesting that, I mean, this interests me as a marketer because whereas we tend to think that markets are a kind of result of aggregated preferences, Actually, a small minority of people who veto something can have a surprisingly large effect on a marketplace if the people who are non-vetoers 
are happy to go along with an alternative. Let me explain this. If you have a school in the UK where 5% of the pupils are Muslim, the whole kitchen will go halal. Why? Because non-Muslims don't mind eating halal food. Muslims will only eat halal food. So as a result, the convenient thing is to have one kitchen which can serve everybody, so everybody eats halal. Slightly unfair to Sikhs, incidentally, who aren't supposed to eat halal food. But we'll park this. They don't seem to make much fuss about it. Um, similarly, if you have a party which is mainly or exclusively male, uh, watching a boxing match or going fishing might be you know, largely male, you can almost be certain that the default drink is beer. However, if you have a mixed gender party, something new enters the equation, which is that about 18 to 20% of women won't drink beer under any circumstances, maybe as high as 30. Men, however, will, without much encouragement, drink pretty much anything. Therefore, if you have a drink which is 50-50 female-male, so let's say 20% of the, the entire group won't drink beer, everybody has wine. It's the type O negative, I think I'm right in saying type, type O negative. It's the universal donor. It's the thing you can give to everybody. Pizza's probably very popular as a foodstuff because nobody really hates it. So understanding, I think, um, that complex systems sometimes have slightly counterintuitive rules to them, I think is a really, really useful thing. With government, by the way, I'll add one more thing which is I don't think we've yet satisfactorily made the case for why nudging is preferable to, say, legislation or using economic incentives. And I think we need to make this case again and again. Let me give you a very simple example here. Let's say you use the price mechanism to get people to use their, ga their gas, their electricity in particular, uh, late at night rather than during the day. So you have several tariffs on a smart meter and you charge people a lot more for daytime electricity use than you do for electricity use in the evening. Therefore, people are incentivized and it will work, okay, essentially to, um, uh, uh, to put their tumble dryers, their washing machines, uh, their dishwashers on in the evening rather than in the middle of the day generally reduces peaks in demand in the network. That then reduces the number of dirty power stations that have to be switched on at times of peak demand. Generally a, victim, uh, a, generally a victory in terms of carbon emissions. Okay, now I would argue the problem with using the, the, cost, the, the, the price mechanism or legislation is there are an enormous number of cases where you want to change behavior where, one, you don't want to change everybody's behaviour. You just want to change enough people to make the system more effective. Setting doctor's appointments would be another case. One, it's actually unacceptable to use the price mechanism in the UK because it's an item of religious faith in the UK that we don't pay to visit the doctor. But it would be preferable if retired people or people who didn't work went to the doctor in the middle of the day so people in jobs could visit the doctor at either end of the day before they went to work or after they got home. Now, the thing about using the price mechanism is that, um, you know, obviously, in some cases, it's unacceptable. It's also unfair to certain groups. If you take the group of people I was talking about who um, you're encouraging to use their dishwashers late in the evening, very nice idea. Everybody gives you a big tick. Very unfair to people who work nights. The great thing with a nudge, the great thing with persuasion, if you take persuasion rather than compulsion over, for example, organ donation, there will always be 5% of people who, for some reason or other, 
object to what you want them to do. And they may have perfectly good reasons. In the case of organ donation, it may be religious. For instance, the certain religions believe you have to keep all your organs intact. I don't necessarily think you're right to believe that, but it's, you know, I respect your belief as far as, as, far as it goes. Now, if you nudge people, everybody has an out. If you fine people, you end up punishing a load of people who may have perfectly good individual reasons for objecting to your intended direction of behavioural shift. So I think there's something really important there, which is that, it, you know, if you like, you know, the difference between it, I mean, that the, there's a beautiful thing in terms of persuasion. And I think that it applies. I always think, you know, essentially you should try persuasion first, bribery second, and legislation third. What tends to happen in government, because it's their natural mode of approach, is they tend to use legislation first before they've even tried persuasion. And the point is that legislation is a blunter instrument than persuasion. One of the beautiful attributes of persuasion is people can always give a good reason and choose not to be persuaded. So, from 30, year, 30 years in advertising, here are a few things I think you should know. I think, um, I, I, I imagine it's Charlie Munger who, who lists these kind of, you know, effectively there are about 10 or 15 things out of maybe a total list of 40 or 50 that, you, that it really helps to hang on your mental mug tree. You might not want to use them all the time, quite a lot of the time, just using standard rational approaches may be absolutely fine. But it's useful to have a mental mug tree. When you get stuck, the likelihood is that you're looking at something in the wrong way. And just grabbing one of these mental mugs might be the get-out-of-jail card that moves your thinking on. I'll, I'll finish with one more, which seems to me something I've noticed, which is that if you want to increase diversity in your workforce, it seems to me obvious that people instinctively increase the variance of things as they buy more of them. So when people do sh small weekly shops, they go to a greater variety of shops than they do when they do one enormous £150 shop every 10 days. If you shop every three days, you'll go to a lot of different shops, some up market, some down market. You might go to Walmart one day, you might go to a small, um, uh, you might go to Whole Foods the next. If you do one enormous shop, you'll go very, very close to the middle. You'll go somewhere that's absolutely mid-market. Admittedly, you're in the US where mid-market grocery retailing doesn't seem to exist. Uh, go figure. As a Brit, I'm completely baffled by your retail landscape. But we have quite a lot of mid-market grocery retailing in the UK. Now, similarly, when everybody had one car, most families had a saloon car at the time. Fairly standard car. People with two cars almost never have a saloon car, and in fact they tend to have two cars which are wildly different. One very large one, one smaller one. So variety increases with frequency, as it were. Now that seems like a really relatively obvious point. Okay? If I asked you, if I asked two people each to go and spend half a million dollars on a house, you'd probably have two quite middle-of-the-road houses. If I asked you to spend a million dollars on two houses, the two houses would not be remotely similar. One would be a flat in the centre of town, the other one would be somewhere miles out by the beach. Okay? All obvious enough, right? Okay? Now, what seems interesting to me is no-one's applied this thinking to recruitment, which is if you want greater diversity of recruitment, hire people ten at a time. When you hire people for one job at a time, you're very, very risk averse and you go for someone very, very close to the expected norm.
Now, the interesting thing is, if you're hiring 10 graduate recruits, you're actually looking for breadth. Now, this happens without any quotas, without any conscious affirmative action. It seems to be a natural property of the human brain that the way we decide changes in variety simply by dint of, uh, of choosing a lot simultaneously rather than choosing one person at a time. So it seems to me an enormously important thing. This is borne out by the fact that partnerships at accounting firms show much less diversity than the graduate recruits do. You appoint partners one at a time, you, you, you hire graduates en masse. And so the fact that our instinctive mode of choice changes depending on the way we choose this seems to be just adding to the literature on choice architecture, but it's always worth asking when you make a choice, how would I make this choice? You remember me talking about the house earlier. How would I make this choice if the choices were presented differently, if they were presented in a different order? So, okay, let's talk about a, a very interesting one, which might be um, motor insurance. How do you get people to tell the truth? One of the things that's been reliably found, if you get people to sign at the beginning of the process rather than at the end, they're more honest. Now, this seems like revolutionarily weird because in the context of a form, we always sign the form at the end. If you notice, I assume it's the same in the, in the US, uh, when we have a, a court trial, you actually swear the oath before you start giving evidence, not after you've finished. So what's very interesting is this kind of domain dependence where things which are bloody obvious in one domain, like where you get people to swear an oath uh, in the context of a court, become completely lost when we shift domain to the area of an um, insurance document. A final question which I've asked, by the way, which I can ask the whole insurance industry, is that we're kind of encouraging people to lie. What happens if you redesign an insurance application so you give people the chance to tell the truth again at the end? Now, let me be absolutely... I don't want to get into trouble here, but I have in the past been mildly dishonest on insurance forms for my car. I've claimed that the car was garaged when in reality it was probably only garaged one night in 20. And I leave the car out. It's a fairly long way from the main road. The reason I'm, I veer on the side of dishonesty is, for all I know, it might cost me £100 more a year to tell the truth. But I don't know how much it costs to tell the truth, so I don't know whether the cost of telling the truth is worth it for the feeling of being an honest person. If I get to the end of my insurance form and it quotes me £340 a year, and then it gives me an extra last-minute option to be honest, and says, if you don't want to garage your car every night, you can park it on the drive for an extra £50 a year. Now it's a finite quotable amount. I'll tell the truth and pay £50 just for the good feeling that results. It's when, it's when I don't know what the cost of honesty is that I'm disproportionately encouraged to be um, economical with the truth.